Hello and welcome to The Sacred, the podcast about how we talk to people who believe, belong and behave differently from ourselves. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield and I'm the director of Theos. This episode is a conversation with Jonathan Derbyshire. Jonathan's executive comment editor of the Financial Times. Before that, he served as managing editor of Prospect magazine and culture editor of The New Statesman. He was a lecturer in philosophy, a mindset you will be able to hear coming through. Like all good philosophers, he's interested in the accuracy of our use of language. We had a really stimulating conversation about his secular liberalism, about how we deal with our pluralism, about the role of emotions in our public conversations, and how he handles the responsibility of being a gatekeeper in the media. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Jonathan, I am going to start with the question I'm asking everyone, which sometimes trips people up, this concept of the sacred. But by by it, I don't necessarily mean something religious. I mean a principle or a value or an object that if someone offered you money to give up, you'd be less likely to give it up. You'd feel offended. Maybe something that you live your life by. And we're going to bracket out our loved ones, our family and children for this purpose. Elizabeth, sacred is not one of my words. Um... As a secular liberal, and we'll no doubt want to spend some time in this conversation worrying about the meaning of both those terms, secular and liberal, um, it's not one of the words I use to capture reality in my net, so to speak. However, um, I do think the term captures something um, of what I think is conveyed by what one might call the principle of intrinsic value, that there are certain things that we value in and of themselves. And I do think the notion of the sacred, um, and as you say, I think secular sense can be made of it. I think that's very important. Um, and we might want to talk about how secular, how, how uh, terms that emanate from religious traditions continue to circulate and have analytical and explanatory value um, in what I think we'd have to agree is a secular age. Um, the sacred seems to me to connote um, a space in which certain things that we hold most dear are uh, sheltered. Um, and so I I think I do, I am committed to a, a notion of something like the sacred because I do think there are certain values. The fundamental value of human lives, for example, I think there are bits of human lives which ought to be protected, sheltered from what one might call instrumental reasoning need to justify themselves, their very existence. Yeah. Um, well, as I said, I think intrinsic value, and the thing that for me as uh, as a secular liberal um, that has intri- intrinsic value are human lives. And I think human lives can go, uh, I think we'd all agree that the human lives can go better, uh, better rather than worse. So I think there's common ground. Um, I think this is a, um, here. I think this is a good example of the sort of common ground that I think you've been uh, looking for in in previous episodes of this podcast. And as I said just now, I do think there are a number of terms that um, come to us from the Christian theological tradition, which we can continue to make secular secular sense of. Um, I mean, another we've been talking about the sacred, but another example is the concept of evil, for example. Um, in a previous life, I was a, an academic philosopher, and I used to teach a course on the the concept of evil. Um, and it always struck me that um, it was it was a, a, an essential part of a of a properly ramified and rich moral vocabulary because it captured um, the idea of there being there being certain acts 
um, and certain kinds of behaviour that are unconscionably bad. Um, so that's an example of and that using the term in that way it doesn't commit me to any metaphysical thesis about the origins of the universe or in any sort of elaborate cosmology whatsoever. Well, I want to unpack that a little bit and help the listener get to know you more as an individual and maybe how you came to some of those, uh, I would call sacred values, uh, in, um, yeah. intrinsic values. Tell me, what was the religious, spiritual or maybe philosophical background of your childhood? What were the values that were in your childhood home? Religion played no part in my uh, childhood upbringing. Um, but the values that um, I was brought up in, I would say, were the values of what in a more sophisticated register today I would call egalitarian liberalism or post-war social democracy. Um, my parents, if you'll permit me a um, detour into biography, my parents were both um, brought up, uh, born um, at the end of the Second World War and brought up in um, working-class homes in the northwest of England, specifically in, in Manchester. So very similar upbringings. My father went to grammar school and then to university. My mother trained to be a primary school teacher. So they are classic products of the post-war welfare state. And so a certain tacit, this was never made explicit, but we're talking about the, the tacit values which shape you as a, as a child. Um, the tacit values were those of um, the post-war welfare state and the idea of the state as something benevolent, uh, the state has some, something enabling that enables the lives of ordinary working people to go better rather than worse. And do you feel that, uh, do you remember the concept of God or religion being something in the background in the culture, something relevant? Is there any point at your life in which that has been um, personal to you? Uh no, because there was no there was no tradition in our family of of church going at all. Um, but the I have a very vivid memory of um, the moment where I first collided with what I now recognise to be a fundamental values. Um, it was in my first year at secondary school, and I hadn't really encountered. Um, conservatives before and I encountered conservatives for the first time at, at I was at a grammar school and um, we were set by our English teacher the task of defending or attacking the principle of equality um, and that was a principle that I had grown up and had been taught to regard as one of the ultimate values if you were, you were asking me what has intrinsic value in my sort of Weltanschauung um, you might just want to translate that my, for our non-German speaking. My world view, <laughs> my vision of the world. And I bumped up against the, the difficulty of um, justifying my commitment to that. Um, and it was uh, justifying, my, justifying my commitment to that, uh, that principle. Um, and I think that was my first encounter with the idea that sometimes in the public square, and this might be a notion that we want to come back to, one's fundamental commitments have to be justified to others who might not share them. Do you feel like you could justify it now? I have a much more sophisticated <laughs> theoretical vocabulary with which to try, although I tend to the view, which is sometimes attributed to the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein, that there are just there are certain points in um, 
philosophical and public argument, which one's spade is turned, one just one reaches bedrock. And for me, the bedrock is those is certain fundamental principles, the values of equality, um, autonomy, human flourishing and so on. Um, you got interested in philosophy then quite early on and went to study it um, at university and later uh, did a PhD. Um, what motivates you? Uh, and because it's still an interest of yours, even in your journalistic life, isn't it? My philosophical training, if I can dignify it with um, such a portentous description, um, is something I draw on every day as a journalist. So um, as you said in your introduction, I work at the Financial Times, I work on the comment pages. Um, So why the medium in, in which I work and live is ideas, argument, and persuasion. So obviously one of the things philosophical training uh, equips you with is the ability to recognise a good or a bad argument when you see one. Um, And I once interviewed David Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker, who said to me, and this is something that has stayed with me, um, and you'll you'll see why it stayed with me and you can see that it's sort of... um, it justifies my own professional trajectory. He said that when he's hiring people, he always likes to hire people who've done at least two two years of graduate school. Um, and certainly somewhere like the the FT, where the intellectual level is is fairly rarefied, having the sort of background I do is um, is invaluable. One of the things that uh, I'm becoming increasingly convinced about is that our one of one of the reasons our public debates are sometimes difficult is that we, at least at certain levels, like on the FT, uh, fight to keep them at the level of argument and reason, um, some of which is very important, but fail often to acknowledge the emotional resonance of a lot of the big questions for us, whether they're political questions, questions about belief or unbelief, questions about gender or race. Do you agree with me? Do you feel that? And what might we do if you do? Or is, is emotion a kind of dangerous territory? I do agree with you, and I, I do feel the force of what you've just said. Before I came here, I reread, I don't know if you're familiar with this essay, which is a, an essay of John Stuart Mills. Um, where he wrote a pair of related essays. One was a portrait of the founder of utilitarianism, Jeremy Bentham, and the other was an intellectual portrait of the poet and literary critic Samuel Taylor Coleridge. And what Mill was up to in those in that pair of pieces was sketching out two contrasting intellectual temperaments, one which you might call hyper-rationalist in the case of Bentham, and the other obviously one could call romantic, or you might want to say is edging towards a religious point of view. Um, And I'd just like to read you something um, that Mill wrote. So Mill said that with Bentham, the question always to be asked about any proposition is, is it true? Whereas for Coleridge, the more interesting question to ask is not whether it's true, but what is the meaning of it? Let me read you, if you'll permit me, a passage from this. So this is John Stuart Mill. He's drawing a contrast between Coleridge's intellectual temperament and, and Bentham's. With Coleridge, on the contrary, the very fact that any doctrine has been believed by thoughtful men was part of the problem to be solved, was one of the phenomena to be accounted for. So it's a much more interesting question than asking of any doctrine or belief that someone holds. It's a much more interesting question to ask where the belief comes from and how it fits in perhaps the web of the other commi- commitments, intellectual and otherwise, that they have, rather than simply um, 
asking the question whether it's true or not, because once you've settled that question, there's nothing more to say. And you can see where I'm going with this. I, I think um, there is there are very important lessons to be drawn from what the distinction that Mill was drawing there for discussions today about, among other things, the place of religion in the public square. Um, you were talking about the role of reason and emotion in um, public discourse. Um, we've seen very recently, this is an obvious point, and I'm sure your previous previous guests have also made it, but the EU referendum in 2016 was not won purely by the power of reason. Not really won at all by the power of reason. Tell me... Um the interesting question I want to ask you then is, as someone who has self-declared secular, would you call yourself atheist, agnostic, humanist? Is there one of those that you feel most comfortable with? Let's let's be clear and make the distinction between secularism, secularism and atheism. Yeah. Um, atheism is a metaphysical view about what there is. Secularism is a view about how you arrange the institutions of the state and how you accommodate religion, religious and other beliefs in it. You're right. I have assumed that as a secular liberal, um, and it's because I know you a bit, um, that you you don't have a belief in God. Um, well, metaphysically, I'm probably an, an, an agnostic, um, but I could hold the views about um, the ideal form of the secular state that I happen to hold, even if I were a believer. You're right. I think there's many in in the Theos team who'd call themselves very happily uh, secular, um, they just would want to define what we mean by well, secular. Well, ex exactly. And I know you're very attached to a distinction that Rowan Williams, you as an organisation and you personally are very attached to a distinction that Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, made between procedural and programmatic yes. secularism. Um, and I think he made this in a lecture he gave in the Vatican in 2005, and it's still um, it's a long lecture, which strikes me as one of the most remarkable and richest interventions made by a public figure in recent decades. Um, and it's a lecture that still merits rereading, um, as I'm sure you've read it many times yourself. And Williams's claim, as I understand it, and you might have a slightly different um, reading of it, Williams's claim is that on the programmatic conception of secularism. Secularism requires that religion is banished, if not extirpated, banished from the public square. Um, on certain hard interpretations of French laïcité, for example, might um, qualify as programmatic in Williams's sense. A procedural secularism, by contrast, um, accepts as I understand it, the principle that the state should be neutral between competing conceptions of the good life, but doesn't require that people have to shuffle off or bracket their most fundamental commitments when they enter public discussion. I want to push you a little bit to go uh, beyond the, the political model to that personal, um, and you've chosen agnostic, and all of these self-identifiers are, are problematic, but to, to turn that question back to you then, not is that true, is your um, hesitancy in deciding at all about the existence of yeah. God true, but what does it? what is the meaning of it for you? How do you experience it? What is your, I suppose, emotional relationship with your agnosticism and how did you arrive at it? It's a very good question um, and you can see... <laughs> well, I've I mean, I've, I've, you've, you've got the biographical bit of the answer already, given my... Um, so it wasn't that you decided against God, it was never part of your intellectual landscape? No, it was, ne no, it was never part of my intellectual landscape. 
what is what is true is that um, as a graduate student, and I was working broadly speaking in the so-called continental tradition in philosophy. So that's the tradition that begins with 18th century, early 19th century German philosophers like Immanuel Kant and G.W.F. Hegel, um, for whom the status, metaphysical as well as political status of religion, was a central question. Um, so. I did develop a philosophical interest in in theological questions, questions then. Um, and to perhaps go back to the personal, because I know you're pushing me on this and I keep uh, evading it, which is entirely characteristic of my intellectual style. Um, those metaphysical commitments that we discuss don't mean that I um, don't have experiences of sublimity transcendence again these are not particularly precise terms um that in other contexts might be called religious it's just that just for me those experiences happen more often than not um in encounters with works of art whether they're works of visual art particularly in my case music and and literature in the Theos office to talk to Ben Ryan about migration. Ben, there is uh, a word being used in the UK media a lot that might not be familiar to everyone and certainly not to our international listeners about the children of Windrush. Who are they? As children of Windrush are children uh, who were from the uh, the former British colonies who came over between 1948 and 1971. And they were encouraged to come over. There was a major labour shortage just after World War II and the British government decided it would it would fill that shortage in part by encouraging uh, people from the former from the former imperial sites, the, the colonies, the Commonwealth to come in and fill them. These children have been here. They've grown up. They've been British for however long. They were encouraged to stay here. Uh, and then this week it emerged that actually uh, due to uh, effectively not an error, but a deliberate failed policy, the British government was trying to deport and remove quite a few of those people, some of whom had no idea that they weren't British. The word Windrush is one of the boats that was used to bring people from the Caribbean? It was the first ship. It's the first ship that came from Jamaica um, back to the UK, and it gave its name to all the others. But these, these aren't only people from the Caribbean, although most of most of the people we think of as the Windrush generation are. But actually, it does include other people as well, from including from from East Africa and from and from the Indian subcontinent as well, would come under the same thing. So the question that some might ask is, why did they never apply for citizenship? Uh, mostly because they were never told they had to. Uh, they were encouraged to come here. There was. Uh, their documents were kept. There'd never been any indicator before that their status was in any doubt. Uh, many of them assumed simply that they were British. They, they had always been Commonwealth citizens. Some of their nations at the time in which they came over were still part of the British Empire. Uh, they, there was no such thing as a Jamaican independent state. So why would you think that you needed to change your status? What is happening to these uh, children of the Windrush generation now? Well, that depends slightly on what the government's going to do over the next few days. But uh, at present, uh, what had been happening is that a, a large number of them have been found to be effectively classified as illegal migrants. Um, their, their states have been processed as such, and some of them have been arrested, put into immigration and removal centres. And in some cases, it seems like actually deported. Um, at the very least, a lot of them had received quite sort of threatening letters uh, from various kind of government departments, the Home Office in particular, uh, and 
this is obviously alarming. Some of them had actually received absolutely ridiculous looking documents advising them on how to fit in in Jamaica when they go back, which included such ridiculous advice as how to put on a Jamaican accent and, and to seem Jamaican and things like this, which seem absolutely so incredibly tone deaf to the situation that these people are going to be in. Now, explain to me what you think is driving these moves that the Home Office have been taking over the last few years and what it might reveal about the kind of ethical background to our current migration policy. Well, it's classic, actually, of the model which Britain has got itself into on migration. Um, firstly, because the, the very idea of the Windrush in its original formation was purely to fill a labour shortage. And that's still largely how a lot of people want to talk about migration now. Um, so when you see policies which talk about uh, temporary migration policies, which bring people in for a specific period of time to fill a job, to be a kind of cog in the economic machine, purely to, for the kind of benefit, quite dehumanising in some ways, and stripping the kind of humanity out of these people, they're just part of doing some sort of economic purpose. That's quite a popular economic model. And that was, broadly speaking, the proposal which Boris Johnson and Michael Gove had during the Brexit referendum with the point system that you would just encourage people to come in to fulfil an economic purpose and then leave again. Um, And so it's slightly odd on one level that people are so outraged about this when this is precisely the sort of policy which so many people at least claim to be in favour of. But the reason they're outraged is because there's a second criteria which is constantly uh, underpinned how the British think about the success of migration, not the policy itself, but whether they're doing it well, which is about integration. And this argument is, it goes back to Norman Tebbit's cricket test. He was very concerned about whether Indian, uh, the children of Indian migrants would support England or India in a cricket match. Um, he was furious about this idea that actually most of them would probably support India just as actually all the Irish still support the Irish at football and rugby uh, four generations later. Uh, and it's a question about integration. It's about a demand for assimilation or integration, depending on where you sit on that base, which is basically that you want people to become British. And the reason that people are so outraged about this Windrush thing is because by any normal criteria for that, these people really were British. They really had integrated. They were fully part of the British state. There'd never been any expectation that they weren't British. Uh, and that, I think, is where the outrage comes in. But it's symptomatic of the whole problem. that Actually, you have these two criteria which are not the same. You can be really economically beneficial to the country and not integrate at all. And conversely, you can be maximally integrated and be a complete economic dead end. And the idea that the two are the same thing is actually quite damaging. So uh, you have a book launching uh, this week as we're recording uh, called Fortress Britain? Question uh, mark, and Which really tries to explore, given that we have an opportunity with Brexit to rethink our migration policies, what might be uh, a positive direction to do that in? I know that the book has contributions from people from a diverse range of perspectives, but from your perspective, what might be some principles from Christian thinking that we might offer to underpin a healthier migration policy? So the book does contain quite a range of views, um, but I think there's, there's sort of four main themes that you can that you can pick out from it. One is around um, identity uh, and what makes someone British. Uh, and there's a whole Christian kind of theological theme about solidarity in that, about what it means to be part of a community or what it means to be on the outside of it. Um, and that links closely to a second theme, which I think is around responsibility and particularly for the vulnerable. We can think of this as refugees and, and, and asylum seekers and of child migrants, and they're obviously amongst the most vulnerable in the world, but that only makes up about 3% of the people who, who come in as migrants any given year. And actually it it's a mistake to kind of stop your ethical question there about responsibility. Anyone who comes into this country is going to be in some way or another missing the networks they had previously, in some way disconnected, in some way will have needs which we have a responsibility to kind of think about. And 
a third theme would be around well, what responsibilities there then are due of those people. So we have the responsibilities of the British state, but actually what are the responsibilities of people who come here? What does it mean to be a citizen? What does it mean to contribute? Um, and, and that matters for communities. I mean, we, it's very easy to get very concerned simply about the vulnerabilities of migrants, but what about the vulnerabilities of communities? Um, Christianity has a lot to say about how you treat outsiders. There also has a lot to say about what it means to support a community and how you don't undermine it too quickly and how you make sure that there is strong bonds and relationships going on between groups. Um, and a final thing, uh, which I think it comes out of a, a few of them, um, is, is almost kind of a philosophical question, really. Uh, it's about how valuable it is to have outsiders at all, about whether welcoming the stranger is part of what makes someone human and whether the idea of encounter is something which is necessary in human existence. Christianity is a religion of encounter. It's based on the incarnation in which God actually becomes a human and lives with people. It is all about encounter. So to what extent, therefore, is migration a necessary part of, of actually being human? Ben, thank you so much for talking to me. You can get hold of that book from the point that you're hearing this podcast from all good booksellers. It feels a very personal and very non-British question to ask, but I've been recently recording a podcast with Neil Griffiths, who's written a novel about a man very much of your intellectual ilk, very much of your view of the world, semi-autobiographical, um, who begins to have ecstatic encounters with God, feels that God is breaking into his life and how that uh, unsettles his very med- middle-class, very highly educated world and how his family and friends react to it. Um and the question for him, I think, is uh, what what would it take? What kind of encounter would it take for the the idea of God to become a possibility? Is it something that you have uh, when you're you're having an encounter with the sublime, something that you've conceived of as a possibility, or it's just not within the list of options of what is happening? It's not. It, I think the latter that it's not in the list of options to describe what is happening, but. On the other hand, if I were to be to adopt the attitude of um, the pragmatist philosopher Richard Rorty, he said it's not obvious to me why you couldn't, if you wanted, describe those experiences as as religious and attach the the word God to them. Um, because what we're, what I'm talking about, and I think what you're talking about, is an experience of um, something bigger than oneself. But of course, one has that experience. You you were talking earlier, or you you, you bracketed um, these sorts of experiences for the purpose purpose of this discussion. But experiences of love, parenthood, friendship, and so on those are experiences of something bigger than ourselves. Let's come on then to the broader questions of how we engage in in our public conversations across difference, particularly particularly over these differences of belief and non belief. Um, what frustrates you about how religious people engage for those of us who are listeners who are religious what could they learn um from your experience and how to communicate better with people who don't share their metaphysics well the first thing i would say is i'm I'm not sure religious people is a particularly um precise term it was um different different religions and different confessions enter the public space in ways which i think are more and less um, satisfactory and helpful. I, w- I have to say, however, that um, the biggest 
source of frustration about the state of public discourse on on and around religion hasn't come from the side of the believers. It's come from the so-called new atheists who seem to me exemplify that slightly narrow and zealous intellectual temperament that John Stuart Mill was describing when he talked about Jeremy Bentham. It's interesting how often the new atheists come up in these conversations as um, a source of frustration for believers and non-believers alike. I do think that the moment seems to have passed. The the, the great Nadir has, has ebbed slightly, but I do. I, it feels to me like the legacy of that new atheist moment is that many people who are highly educated um, might feel embarrassed about having spiritual questions or considering the claims of religion, see it as kind of in, in the intellectual oddball box. Someone like Rowan Williams helps balance that, Marilyn Robinson and others. But um, do, do you perceive that? Do you think there is still a level of embarrassment, say, at the FT, would people talk openly about being religious? No, the um, I have to choose my words carefully, given that there is a possibility that my uh, impl- colleagues and um, bosses may be listening. Um the FT probably embodies almost perfectly a certain cosmopolitan, urban, metropolitan, liberal outlook in which if religion is talked about at all, it's a private matter. I have brought you onto our op-ed pages at least, at, at least once, um, but... Frankly, it's hard to get these questions discussed. Um, There are obviously specific contexts in which the question of religion tends to erupt, and that tends to be in connection with um, radical politicised Islam for uh, obvious reasons. It's one of the reasons why religion as a category does have limited explanatory power. Yes, (laughs) yes. That's what I was guessing. Let's talk about uh, the media specifically and uh, and your job. One of the things that comes up more or less as an old chestnut is that one of the reasons we're more divided, um, if indeed we are so, and the polling indicates we probably are, on things um, like politics and um, social values, uh, might be that our media is getting more polarised. The changes in the business model means that the kind of clickbait um, ilk of desperately trying to grab the attention of the readers means people's views get more and more extreme. How do you... uh, you, Is is that in fact true, do you think? Has there been a... um, uh, uh, a trend towards more extreme views presented on the media, or has it always been thus? And how do you deal with that actual moral quandary? Because a lot of that responsibility is in the hands of people like mm-hmm. you. No, I do I do recognise the picture you describe. I think there is a question about the extent to which um, it's those changes in the media landscape which have caused the coarsening and polarisation or whether there are other forces that um, brought, brought, brought that brought those um, that polarisation about. I think it's 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 a bit of both, and you can't account for the particularly intense polarisation of British politics at the moment simply by pointing to a more atomized and dispersed media landscape. That said, I would agree uh, again. I would agree with you that. Those of us working in what's sometimes called the legacy media, I'm not going to use the phrase. Ma- ma- <laughs> that doesn't make you feel particularly hip and cutting edge, does it? <laughs> not, it doesn't. But I, I refuse to use the term mainstream media because it's become a, um, it's been adopted by um, by extremists. Well, extremists on both sides actually. It's not just the far right. It's the it's the it's the far left too. I don't need to name any names here. But I do think we have even more so now in given the circumstances that you've described so well, I do think we have a profound civic and moral mission. 
not necessarily to tell the truth, but to leave the field open for reasonable people to agree and disagree on matters of the deepest public import. And uh, as you know, my background is at the BBC. I worked on problems, uh, programmes like The Moral Maze. So I had the kind of BBC idea of balance very drilled into me from an early age. So we, when we were making a programme, we were trying to balance things on, on various axes. Uh, I don't know how, as an FT comment editor, w- what are the criteria you're looking for when you are selecting columnists and columns and, and subjects? How are your, um, what is your priority list for what looks like a really brilliant edition of the paper? Um, well, we are not committed to the BBC's conception of balance and impartiality, and it sounds as though you you might agree with me that that is sometimes a distorting optic at the at the BBC. Um, I'd like to come back to the moral maze in particular because I think that raises particularly interesting questions about how difficult the media landscape in. Let's talk specifically about this country because there are national variations in the other developed nations. But how difficult the media conversation finds it to accommodate serious moral, serious discussion and disagreement about moral issues. Um, going back to your question about how we how we commission, uh, we have a we have a, a a stable of in-house columnists who. Uh, members of staff, um, and who probably collectively express a worldview of the sort that I was referring to earlier. Um, One of the things I do as a commissioning editor is bring in voices from outside, and we are committed to allowing, so far as is possible, allowing, um, as Mao once said, a thousand flowers to bloom. Um, Are there voices that you would, in principle, not provide space for because you would feel that was irresponsible? Yes, there are. Um, I'm talking about extreme racist views, for example. Um, I've no interest in what's sometimes called stunt commissioning, and that that really is where you would, for example, invite a figure from the alt-right. I think there is a... The baseline is a certain basic commitment to fundamental democratic norms. Um, And a member of the alt-right or indeed um certain people on the on the extreme left don't subscribe to those norms and they for they therefore disqualify themselves from being part of the debate but that's a very minimal precondition for yes. for um finding your way into the discussion that we want to foster um if, you know if we're talking about um what values i hold most dear then a um then a lively civic sphere um, and civil society it seems to me absolutely essential. I mean, a good society is one in w- which has a um, an active civic sphere. And ever since the 18th century, newspapers have been essential vehicles of that civic spirit. And we, in our small way, try to contribute to that. I can never remember accurately the quote, but it's, isn't it the third estate, the parliament, the church and the media? Those three We're things working together. We're the fourth estate. Fourth estate. What's the third? I think it must be the law. We can come back less. <laughs> One of the divides that people think about when uh, they are hand-wringing about the, our divided nation is, um, and it relates to religion uh, because of the demographic trends, but is this divide that David Goodhart has called between the somewheres and the anywheres um, that uh, 
you know, we can quibble about those terms, but which showed up most clearly in the Brexit referendum and uh, something like FT or indeed Theos, um, lots of um, other leading institutions are, uh, it at least is said, felt to be distant and elite and uh, unconnected with the lives of, horrible phrase, ordinary working people. Do you do you think that is a fair analysis? Um, where do you think that divide falls? And is there anything we can do about it? First thing we should do is separate that analysis from any account of the political sociology of the Brexit vote, because I think one of the um, points about the Brexit vote that was routinely is routinely overlooked, but it's very, very important, is that 55% of the Leave vote was not um, did not come from working-class people in abandoned post-industrial towns, either in the northwest or on the eastern littoral, but from... Um, the middle class broadly construed, um, particularly in the, the southeast and the home counties. So let's get that aside. Um, yes, we do at the FT, and I'm sure this is true of other media organisations as well, feel some responsibility for having, to some extent, missed the story. Um, because we are, for better or worse, the repository of a certain worldview which is mobile, to adopt David Goodhart's terms, cosmopolitan, um, outward-looking and so on. So, yes, I think we, we acknowledge the responsibility and there has been a concerted effort in a lot of the FT's reporting. I'm not talking about the, the opinion pages here, but about our reporting to go to parts of the country and talk to sort, the sorts of people that perhaps we weren't talking to before. Uh, I want to touch briefly on the other identifier that you use very early on, um, as well as secular, you call yourself a liberal. And one of the things we think deeply about here is that idea of increasing pluralism, increasing difference. What is the political settlement that allows us to live well together with um, the deep difference, in Charles Taylor's words, the increasing tendency for us to believe, belong and behave differently from those living next door to us or in the next town along. Um, many of the listeners will have at least heard of Tim Farron's uh, Theos Annual Lecture in which he gave a very personal account of both his liberalism and his evangelical Christian faith and how those two things fit together. We've had at least one guest take issue with both of them. Um, as someone who calls himself a liberal, what is your vision for um, how liberalism might be the answer to living well with difference? I think liberalism has always been, certainly as um, a form of political philosophy, an attempt to work out how you precisely that how you live live with difference how you organize a society in which people have deeply held and competing conceptions about what constitutes the constitutes the good life um i mean i would say we i talked earlier about the principle of equality and how that loomed so large uh, in my childhood. I'd probably describe myself as an egalitarian liberal. Um, that's to say I take the fundamental principles of liberty and equality seriously. Um, I also think those fundamental principles often clash. Um, and this is where if you wanted to put names for intellectual history to the sorts of positions I would take, I would say I cleave more to the view of... Uh, the great historian of ideas and political philosopher Isaiah Berlin than I do to Rawls, to the um, founder of American political liberalism, John Rawls. Um, that's, uh, I think Rawls was probably too optimistic about how easy it is using fairly thin jurisprudential principles to um, get people to rub along, more or less. Um, 
I think Berlin was right that fundamental values and liberty and equality among our fundamental values often come into conflict. Uh, and he thought that conflict um, could never be um, totally overcome and that politics, this is where we get to politics, just is the business of managing that conflict. Just framing my question. Um, do you think there are any resources? Religion, and this is the legacy of the way the American political settlement has uh, cashed out in the last decades, but uh, certainly in the UK there is a reasonably strong, and you see it in Tim Farron and, and others, a reasonably strong um, influence uh, and congruence between Christian thought and liberalism, or at least a Christian pluralist settlement. We have a report um uh, a, a kind of Christian multiculturalism, uh, uh, drawing on the a theology really of creation and of the, the the diversity and the difference of creation and an ethic of hospitality. Might it be worth revisiting some of those principles, like in Catholic social thought, as a way of helping shore up liberalism that certainly feels like it's under attack? Feels like it's under attack. I think that's right. Um, although to, to talk about Tim Farron for a moment, I mean, I, I did think his lecture was um, partly profoundly unusual intervention for a British politician to make because, as you know, we don't do God in this country. Um, and a sort of lumpen secularism uh, has been the um, default mode for most British politicians. However, I found, I found it problematic. Um, I made a note of something Farron said in that lecture, um, which I would like to read to you if I can, um, because I think we ought to tug at it a bit and unpack it. Christianity, he said, is the central underpinning of liberalism and indeed of democracy. Now, it, your question, you were hinting at, are there resources that secular liberals can um, make use of in, in Christian traditions? And I would say absolutely yes. Um, and Catholic social thought, which you mentioned, um, is a particularly powerful one when we are thinking, for example, about how we resist the pressure of commodification and the intrusion of the writ of the market for example, and of market-type instrumental reasoning into areas of human life which we might think it doesn't belong. Um, I was talking about the intrinsic value of human life earlier, and one of the corollaries of that is I think there are bits of human life that aren't susceptible to um, market-type market type reasoning. Um, Farron seems to be sa saying something stronger, which make, uh, I'm not sure about. So, as a historical claim, it clearly is true that liberalism owes a great deal to Christianity. Um, if you think about one of the great liberal thinkers, um, 17th century English philosopher John Locke, his commitment to the fundamental principle of equality, to mention that principle again, was um, that was an artefact of theology. That was a theological uh, claim he was making. Um, but I don't think Farron meant that as a historical claim. It seemed to me that he meant it as a normative claim. And that becomes clearer, I think, when he went on to make a distinction between what he called relativistic values and Christian commitments, which carry with them the authority, and authority is the word he used, of scripture. Um, and there may be a conversation to be had about just how subtle a reader he is of, of scripture. And it seems to me there he's making a mistake that some liberals make by seeing that the 
by assuming that the, the opposition we have to work with is either either its fundamental religious commitments on the one hand or relativistic values on the other. And that seems to me a mistake that Liberals make about the status of their own values because I don't think the values that I've been talking about and which are fundamental to me and which occupy a position that's as profound and as valuable and dear to me as your as your religious commitments, mm-hmm. um, I don't see those as, as relativistic commitments that have no purchase on, on anyone else. Um, so it's very interesting that he's making a symmetrical error that many liberals make about their own, their own values. This goes to the heart, I think, doesn't it, of why it's very difficult to talk about moral issues in public without descending into a self-defensive um, campaign mode, because I think we all feel the sense of... Uh, of the truth of our values, but also the difficulty of grounding them in ways that are um, commonly agreed upon. One of the things I'm coming to is a higher level of humility about our own positions and, you know, drawing on both the political theory, but also what we're learning about neuroscience and the way human beings work and our kind of implicit assumptions. The trouble is if you say in public debates... I think we should all be a bit more humble. You will just lose if you're trying to make a case because the opposition is unlikely to do so. Is there a way of building a movement of people modelling a more um, self-aware, emotionally intelligent, humble approach to our positions in public life or is that just naive nonsense? Well, then it's just incumbent among those of us with um, gatekeeping powers and I guess as a commissioning editor on um, a global newspaper, I have gatekeeping powers. It's incumbent upon us to give house room to those sorts of those sorts of voices i want to um pick up on something you said just now about um how about the nature of moral discussion um in public life in this country you mentioned the radio bbc radio 4 program the moral maze earlier and one of my recurrent frustrations with that program is its very very narrow conception of what morality means. Um, So morality tends to be restricted simply to questions, uh, personal behaviour, sexual preference, um, one's view on, for example, issues like the rights and wrongs of abortion, as if much more fundamental questions about how um, the goods of an advanced market economy are distributed weren't moral. But for me, as as a Milk toast social democrat, they are moral questions. Those redistributive questions are profoundly moral. They're questions about how we arrange our society and how we live together. Those are moral questions. I agree questions. with you. I, it was a wonderful program to work on and a great opportunity, but there were many reasons that I uh, exited the BBC in order to work here. And part of it was uh, a frustration that though th- that Christians were only heard to speak about those that small set of moral questions, whereas if you have a a moral vision of the world based on scripture. It talks about tax and money and uh, the poor and the immigrant far more regularly than does about uh, personal sexual ethics, but also because of the tendency for any programme like that, and the moral maze is not uniquely guilty, to um, push each argument to its most extreme form and only seek those who can argue at it at its most extreme form in order to demonstrate the range in a way that I think fundamentally distorts um what are difficult, personal, complex, nuanced questions that we should not be retreating to our trenches on. Mm. Um, and I should say that I share exactly those frustrations, as not as believer, but as a secular, as a secular liberal. There seems to be, there is an assumption, again, you know, I, I referred earlier to what I called lumpen secularism, and I think a good example of that, um, that sort of outlook is the idea that 
the moment you start talking about moral questions, you're essentially talking about religious questions, as if there were there wasn't a, a moral vocabulary that independent. Certainly, I would argue it's independent of commitments about the existence or otherwise of God. I think that's part of our philosophical as well as religious illiteracy in the UK. Yeah, well, I do think we are a deeply um, morally and philosophically illiterate culture. <laughs> we are. Well, maybe we can create some space on this podcast. Um, tell me, are you optimistic or pessimistic about our future public conversations? Um, I I have to be optimistic, not because, like um, as Martin Luther King said, I think the arc of history bends towards justice. I think the bloody history of the 10th, 20th century rather refutes that. He had a, a bigger eschat- eschatology, didn't he? He did. He had a, a bigger eschat- eschatology, didn't he? <laughs> he did. Um, nevertheless, I'm beginning to see, a, I see in the political culture a sense that perhaps we've allowed things to go too far and um it is if you look purely commercially that the great traditional newspapers uh, think about the financial times i think in the u.s washington post and new york times they are flourishing financially so perhaps people people's commitment to certain basic values of civic decency in discourse are um, less impaired than we might have feared. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Sacred. We'd really love to know what you think. You can get in touch via Twitter, which is at sacred underscore podcast or email us at thesacredpodcast at gmail.com. We'd also love to ask a favour. If you're enjoying the series and you think it's important that we have big questions about difference, we'd love to enlist your help to spread the word. Please think about posting a review or rating us on iTunes or any other of your favourite podcast providers. Share on social media and tell your friends. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos or come to one of our Central London events, you can connect via our website at theosthinktank.co.uk.